When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. From ancient Mesopotamia to the Monetary Policy Committee, the story of trade, commerce and capitalism is also the story of interest rates. Few people are as intimately acquainted with that topsy-turvy narrative as our guest this week, the financial journalist and historian Edward Chancellor. In his recent book, The Price of Time, Edward offers not only a sprawlingly fascinating history of interest and credit, but a compelling argument about how years of long, low rates have led us to the verge of economic crisis. Well, Edward, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Your latest book, The Price of Time, came out in July, and it tells, well, as the subtitle says, the real story of interest. There's an enormous amount to get into here. I mean, this pervades basically the entire history of finance. But just to kick off, I want to talk about the very early part of your book where you talk about kind of the origins of interest. And I was really interested to uh, find out that interest actually, in, in your words, predates money. It's something that is, it feels very innate to almost the human condition to expect, uh, you know, payment, something to go up in value over time. Yes, I mean, so we we have... You know, recorded history of interest going back some five millennia or so to the Mesopotamian period. And it probably goes back even further than that into pre-recorded history. Because if one looks at the origins of the word interest in the ancient languages, um, whether it's Greek or, or Sumerian or Syrian or Egyptian, that it tends to be related to the offspring of animals. So there is a sense that that the interest charge is, 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 is linked to the productivity of the loan. Um, but then we have more detail uh, about lending in ancient Mesopotamia. And what we find is that interest serves several functions uh, in, in the Mesopotamian economy, much the same as it does in the modern economy. Namely, that loans are raised by Mesopotamian merchants in order to uh, for for both their trading ventures and for local businesses for their, um, and the, and the, with the tr- the interest charge on loans uh, for trading, there is a a risk premium, 
Um, and therefore, one, as we know, one of the functions of interest is to provide an insurance against loss. We also have um, in the Mesopotamian economy a, a market in, um, in real estate and interest there appears to be let, you know, linked to the rent on property. Again, another theme of, of, of interest uh, throughout history is the link between the yield on capital and uh, whether it's rent on houses and, and the value of capital. So for instance, in German, the word interest is zins that derives from rent. Um, and, and in France, uh, the rentier was the person who, 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 who got uh, an income from, from rents or what we call a bondholder. Um, so, so you find, as I say, in the Mesopotamian economy, a, a um, interest serving some of the functions that we see today. We also find, um, as you remember, uh, attempts by the authorities to regulate financial activities. And as I point out, the Code of Hammurabi, the first, um, the first known body of, of, of laws, uh, for, for, uh, of human laws, actually involves attempts to regulate uh, the, the, the maximum charges of, of interest. But I suggest looking at the um, at the history that there are there were ways of regulatory arbitrage of, of evading the, the the those laws just as we find today. So um, I, I think the takeaway from this very early period is that there is some there must be something essential about interest for it to have originated so so uh, such a long time ago, and also that even a uh, relatively primitive economy requires interest for um, in order to facilitate uh, certain economic transactions. Yeah, it's um, quite a, it's a fascinating aspect is that you, you describe it as something that's, like you say, almost uh, innate to even the most primitive economy, but it's also something that has provoked great moral outrage at the same time throughout throughout history, and particularly among kind of Christian societies where usury was seen as this huge sort of sinful activity. Yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I hope in my book to sort of set the record straight on that front. Um, as I point out, in, in, a, um, in, in a traditional economy, uh, you know, agricultural economy, which is not growing, high rates of, of compound interest can be, um, very painful. And we find in uh, Mesopotamia, in Greece and in ancient Rome, um, people who were indebted uh, falling into states of, of debt bondage, just as you would find uh, in, in, in parts of the developing world today. And I think that, that you know, a criticism of excessive interest uh, under those conditions of, 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 of the rich um, abusing the poor are, are valid. However, um, the, 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 there is a flaw in these early criticisms of interest. And, and strange enough, they, they seem to have originated with the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And Aristotle makes the argument that, uh, that money is created for use in exchange rather than to, and that is that money is inherently infertile and that therefore it is wrong 
for a um, for for a lender to charge um, for you know to charge interest on a loan. Now, what I point out, uh, going back to Aristotle, and bear in mind that Aristotle's um, complaints about interest were adopted by the medieval church, um, is that that he that Aristotle doesn't consider the um, the the period of time in use. So for instance, if I were to lend you, you know, a thousand pounds and demand it back, uh, you know, a, a, a much larger sum in five minutes time, that might be seen as unjust. However, if I give you a thousand pounds and give it to you for five years and you have the use of that money and you might do something profitable with that money, uh, then it seems fair enough to share in the, in, in the, in the proceeds. Um, and so, what, what I've, um, I named the book, The Price of Time, because uh, I argue, and it seems pretty obvious when one um, phrases it like that, that time must have a value. And one of the reasons time has a value is not just, as I mentioned, because of the productivity of loans, um, whether it's buying a house to rent it out or engaging in some business activity, but also because humans have what economists call um, time preference or uh, what in sort of lay language might be called impatience, namely that they prefer present to future uh, pleasures. And if you give somebody, if you promise somebody something in the future, it is worth less to them than it is today. So this, this element of, of time preference is, is a sort of innate origin of, of interest in, 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 in human psychology. Just to come back briefly to something you said about the Hammurabi's um, laws that was written down, brings up another in, um, point that's important, which is that throughout human history, we've seen quite arbitrary definitions of what interest should be, where it follows custom rather than reflecting what's actually going on in like in the real economy and we kind of see the same thing with um something like inflation targeting now it's just it is two percent because it's two percent um i mean this is to me that was one of the more sort of fascinating things is how contingent interest rates can be on the particular society yes i mean so and it is interesting that um the mesopotamian interest the interest in the ancient world seems to be linked around to or the 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 set rates of interest seem to be linked to the um, number systems that these civilizations use. So the Bab the Babylonians used a sexagismal system, the uh, the Greeks a, a decimal system, and the Romans a, a system based on 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 twelves. And the interest becomes is linked to that. And then I think even I, I point out that that the, the the Bank for International Settlements done a study of interest, and they show that that interest in uh, over the last 150 years seems to have been set at different levels according to the different monetary regimes. And so there is one element uh, in which interest is a sort of, if you will, a sort of traditional, uh, based on sort of, on on the sort of tradition of the society at any time. And that's strangely enough is is a is something that both uh, a point that both Keynes and Karl Marx uh, ma made about interest. But then there is also 
underlying this a, a market rate of interest. So even if we if we look to to the as I say to the you know to to ancient Greece, you'll find that that interest is officially set at ten percent, but it appears that loans are actually being transacted at at, at different levels. Yeah, and that's another thing you mentioned that we often talk about in commentary about rates as if it's one number, whereas especially in a modern economy, you're talking about almost an infinitesimal number of different things, depending on who is transacting with whom. Yeah, it's, it's, there is a complex of interests and, and it, it's, you know, there, it's a thorny issue whether one can actually talk about an interest rate and an even thornier issue, as you know, whether one can talk about a natural rate of interest as a sort of an underlying rate of interest in an economy. So there are these elements about interest um, that in that sense, they're a bit like money that the sort of the closer you look into the problems, the more and more complex they appear to be. And, and at some level, they're uh, not resolvable. Yeah, I mean, just so we've kind of uh, discussed the background a bit in the theoretical um basis of interest but the the dragon if you like that you set out to slay in this book as well as offering this this very detailed history that you do the dragon you set out to slay is this pervasive long low interest rates that we have experienced well for most of the last few decades really in in the western world i mean just briefly how did we end up with such a kind of consensus among central bankers that this was a desirable state of affairs well, I mean, I'd start, uh, I would start by, by, by arguing that the, the central bankers and the, and the modern economics establishment uh, don't think deeply enough about interest. Um, as I argue in the book, interest is really uh, the, the universal price that helps coordinate intertemporal activities. Yeah. saving and lending and investment and valuation and so forth and the the central bankers sort of take all that as given and i think the reason they take it as given is slight because they're you know unaware of the history of economic thought and therefore they haven't sort of looked you know looked into how people thought thought about interest in the past their predecessors uh, but also they have this very narrow view of interest um uh, as being something that really uh, affects that 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 is really a, a lever to uh, to to determine inflation, and that their role is just to um, is to um, is to is to raise interest rates as we're seeing now when inflation uh, appears, and then to take uh, in, interest rates down uh, when the consumer price level is, is declining. Or threatens to decline, and and really, so I mean, as I point out in the book, over the last thirty years, with you know, globalization in particular, uh, the the, the um, advent of China in the in in the world trading system, and with technology improvements and so forth, there has been a uh, there's been a decline in uh, traded goods prices and a dampening impact on inflation in the western world that was the uh, that gave the um, monetary policy makers uh, following their their inflation targets either formally in the case you know of new zealand or other countries from from um, 
from 1990 onwards or just informal inflation targets uh, in, in other central banks. They just um, they use that as the excuse uh, to take interest rates down. And then after the global financial crisis, there was a, a, a threat of, 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 of debt deflation. And that became the um, the, the the impetus to take uh, interest to policy rates down to uh, to zero, which is the lowest level in in history, and then uh, keep them there uh, really until you know until this year. Um, and um, in the second half of the book, uh, the art uh, my argument is because uh, the low the ultra low interest rates cause a number of of um, problems, uh, whether it's the misallocation of capital or the buildup of financial fragility, uh, it so happened that the low rates begot even lower rates. So we were sort of caught in a sort of downward spiral of, uh, of, of, of falling rates, weak, weak economic growth and rising financial fragility. And we now see, you know, we now seem to be sort of uh, reaping, <laughs> reaping the um, the the you know the benefits, but the, the the problems of, of those policies. Yeah, I think it's worth just listing the. There's a sequence. You say productivity, housing, inequality, market competition, and financial fragility all stem from this low, low, long interest rate environment that you. Uh, discuss and the other thing is is the advance of the state because if you can't if if interest is the price at, at which a, a a capitalist or market economy uses to coordinate its activities without that price the coordination fails and then capitalism is itself then seemed to fail and in the absence of an effective capitalism or effective growth, you then have you you then find uh, the state stepping in. Whether that's the central banks taking a more activist role in allocation of of credit and so forth, or whether it's the states themselves, as as in the case of you know the great uh, lockdowns uh, of, of twenty twenty and the and the policies that that, that accompanied that. Um, I don't think any of that really would have happened, but for the extraordinary, or it would have happened in a very much more limited way, uh, uh, but for the extraordinary low interest rates of that period. Yeah, it strikes me that when you talked about low interest rates begetting low interest rates, the same is true of state intervention. The more the government does something, the more the particularly opposing politicians can say, well, you did this then, why can't you do it now? And they Yeah, and I'm, I'm just reading uh, 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls by Robert Schuttiger and Eamon Butler, which make, I mean, price controls is, you know, the actual yeah. classic case. Eamon is very much a friend of the website, so we're always glad to um, hawk his wares on here. Um, um, so, just coming on, sorry, I'll just grab my next question. Where's it gone? Sorry. Um, yes, I'm. In, I'm wanted to talk about the sort of you mentioned it briefly in your last answer, but a loss of faith in capitalism itself is one of the kind of alarming consequences of this. It strikes me that there are a lot of parallels here between the 1930s, when people, especially in America, were thinking this is a system that just does not work for me, 
and the post um, great financial crisis era. People always talk about Trump and Brexit and stuff, but it was also an era where Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders and lots of other kind of left wing rabble rousers all over the place got, got very popular. And in a, in a way, I mean, you kind of it's quite understandable that people that kind of politics would appeal to people when you see what's been going on in the in the sort of pseudo market economy. Yes, I mean, I mean, one of the things that's been frustrating over the last um, you know, six or seven years was when the question of populism or so-called populism uh, became discussed was the assumption that populism was entirely irrational, that rather than an expression of of, of discontent, it might you know you you might disagree with the way the discontent is expressed, but uh, without but too many commentators have failed to actually address the underlying discontent. Now, uh, two points I'd make here. One is I, I mentioned that the interest rate as a um, as a hurdle rate for investment um, is, is a, actually has a profound uh, impact on 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 capital allocation and. I argue that the very low interest rate of recent years has actually contributed, uh, well, has thwarted Schumpeter's um, process of creative destruction mm. and therefore contributed to the collapse in productivity. This which is the zombie companies you're talking about. Yes, it's yeah. the zombie companies, but even, even in fact, actually, you know, um, I'd say that the, a lot of the money thrown at the at tech at, at, at tech companies, at unicorns and so forth, it has also been misallocated. Much of it. it the important thing is 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 to have a a, a discount rate or or a capitalization rate that uh, that actually um, reflects, I mean, to be technical, reflects society's actual time preferences rather than you know, rather than being uh, skewered downwards um, and. And so, so you've got that problem on the one hand, sort of uh, declining productivity growth, which feeds through into low uh, e low wage growth. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the declining uh, discount rate or capitalization rates inflates the value of assets, um, whether they're housing or stocks or bonds or whatever, and um, it's pretty obvious that that help that benefits the haves, those who already own assets, relative to the have-nots, or uh, as as someone put it to me, uh, the price of those things that give you security, uh, namely uh, health. I mean that's more true of America: health, housing, uh, education, and retirement saving. Um, is it becomes elevated and, and therefore beyond the reach of, of many and and i uh, i have a chapter on uh on inequality uh and uh and the ultra low interest rate uh phenomenon and um in, in which i argue that the inequality uh has has risen uh to some extent, as a function of the falling interest rate. And, and you can see that quite clearly. If you think how, for instance, uh, the chief executives of large corporations in the US and UK are, are, are um, 
are compensated nowadays that it that with stock-based compensation that it as the interest rate goes down the valuation of the market goes up then obviously the ceos are going to be earning more money that's also true if you have been in the investment business where your pay ultimately is a derivative of the level of the stock market if you're an investment banker when interest rates go down you do more deals uh, because it's you know uh, because when you you get these takeover booms and and private equity booms uh, at times of low interest rates so you, you swell the size of the financial sector you benefit uh, the older and richer sections of the community uh, relative to 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 the younger and less rich um who at the same time experience no wage growth so what do you think they uh, what do you think they start to feel they start to feel that the system doesn't help them and this is a point that that you know in my last uh, chapter i i discuss uh, the you know the the points that that uh, friedrich hayek made in his road serfdom where he says that you know that capitalism uh, and democracy in the end depend upon a rising standard of living um and as Hayek's contemporary Schumpeter said, you know, writing about the same time uh, in, in, in 42, 1942, uh, that, that, you know, that capitalism uh, might not survive under those circumstances. Um, another point which I think might interest your, your uh, listeners is that the, the, the most famous uh, comment on, on inequality uh, over the last decade was made by uh, the French economist Thomas Piketty, where he argues that inequality increases when uh, the rate of return uh, exceeds economic growth, or R, in, in notation, R is greater than G. Well, I argue that Piketty's formula is the wrong way round, and, and you can see it quite clearly uh, in the historical data from the 19th century, the 1920s, and over the last 40 years, when the rate of when the rate of interest, R, also more common notation, R, is actually below the rate of growth, then inequality appears to inexorably increase. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, just turn, to zoom in a little bit on our current travails, I mean, your book has, you seem to have a knack of publishing things just at the right time. You published devil take the hindmost just before the dot-com bubble you had a book in 2005 on the credit crunch a few years before that happened and now the price of time you talk about something called the everything bubble and and it strikes me that um you mentioned that when you have low rates people go for crazy schemes and examples like um was it building a canal to kamchatka um is the modern canal to kamchatka something like nfts and you know Stuff that basically yeah, has no value I mean, trading in for enormous sums. That so so you know, the the one of the one of the, one of the purposes I'm trying to 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 achieve with this book is to to take people's uh, over the last you know twenty thirty years. Uh, I think there's been a somewhat excessive interest in behavioural finance that tends to ascribe all these bubbles uh, to um, sort of human. Irrationality. Now, Madness of I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that that that, that people aren't irrational, um, but I'm. What I think one, <laughs> what what I think is pretty clear, at least to my mind, is that all the great speculative bubbles occur at times of, so to speak, easy money, and um, you know, in in, um, in 2020 during the um, pandemic lockdowns. Uh, with the governments, with central banks printing vast sums of money, we saw uh, the last gasp of, of an extraordinary speculation, which uh, which Warren Buffett's sidekick, uh, Charlie Munger, describes as the most uh, uh, extraordinary events in all of financial history. And I think he's sort of more Munger is more or less correct. We saw. Uh, you know, the, we saw, uh, as you say, that you know he's the, been alive for most of it. So, yeah. <laughs> but a good chunk of the capitalists. Yeah, he remembers the Great Depression. Like. Yeah, yeah, but so, but I mean, you think you've got you've got the non fungible in tokens, which you know highly dubious. Then you had, if you remember, you had um, cryptocurrencies uh, that were spoofs on other crypto. You had they, so it was sort of, uh, Ru- yeah, they were sort of Russian yeah. dolls that you. Uh, yeah. uh, of of, um, of of spoofs on spoofs on spoofs. And people um, buying houses in the metaverse was another one I thought was. Um, yeah, you can have all you can you know. Wait, I mean another way of putting it is, and I is that finance became hyper real, in the sense that valuations, uh, and and what attracted the objects of speculation were really divorced from. Uh, things in in the real in the real world um and i think that's another way you can see of another function of interest is to keep the world of finance in balance with the real world because in a way finance should is a mirror of, of it you know finance is really a mirror for transact by which you can transact the 
things that actually exist in, in the world, like houses or whatever. Um, and if you, you know, if you, if you, if you uh, distort the rate of interest, then you get uh, a hyper real or, or unnatural uh, economy. And I think that's, you know, that's really uh, where we were going at, at, at sort of at, at hyper drive um, until the end of last year. And then what we're seeing this year, I think is, you know, is, is reality uh, reasserting itself. Uh, and the process of the reassertion of reality reality, uh, which comes through, um, you know, comes through both our energy crisis. And it's quite curious that, you know, if you remember a year or so ago, Tesla, uh, which, which I think in its first 10 years has sold something, perhaps 15 million cars, uh, had, had a greater market value than all US energy companies put together. Now you know the you know whether we like it or not, you know, we uh, we live we live on a energy with people again waking up to the fact we live in an energy based uh, economy and civilization, and it, that didn't really make much sense. Um, and then you know the printing the other thing that happens when with you know the the interest also tethers the value of money. I mean you think about it, what is a you know, a, a note, a, 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 gov a, a banknote, a fiat banknote is just a zero coupon perpetual bond. If you take the rate of interest down to nothing, you then, you then actually the, the sort of the valueness potential of, of that money becomes uh, more apparent. And then obviously, you know, the central banks print a lot and governments borrow a lot. You feed through to the inflation and, and, and then the fragilities that I write about in the book, whether they're, you know, the, the weakness of the economy or, 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 or the, the excessive valuations in stock markets and in, and in real estate markets begin to crumble. So, the, so your, your, your hyper-real uh, vision begins to, to fracture. And what's the, um, what conclusions should we draw about the, the popping of the everything bubble. What do you think that might look like for ordinary people? And what do you think would your advice from an investment perspective be to people if they want to kind of hedge against the worst? I, I think uh, you know, for society as a whole to hedge against this problem, uh, it, it's pretty much in, it, it impossible because um, you know, I mean, you can see the, the data very clearly from the US that US household wealth is inflated, I'm saying off the top of my head, around 200% of GDP more than its long-term average. And that inflation of wealth seems to be linked to the, um, to the um, decline in, in interest rates. So as interest rates rise, that wealth will come down. So the game of investment uh, is to stay ahead of that process but i think you'll find that you know this year with the exception you know say of, of the energy companies it's been pretty much a sort of bloodbath uh, it, whatever you invest in and partly the reason is as you're probably aware you know most invest long-dated investments uh, they all have you know what what investment people call duration embedded in in them which is sensitivity to rising rates so 
I mean, you might have been, you might be concerned with with good reason uh, about inflation, and therefore have chosen to invest in inflation protected bonds or index linked bonds. But but unfortunately, <laughs> the the rise in you know the rise in the in the interest rate then actually hits them harder than than the inflation protection they provide so their prices come down uh, but there you know there are you know investors can you know i suppose what investors can do is so to speak shorten duration uh, by buying stocks that are uh, cheaper value stocks rather than you know growth stocks rather than, you know which tech stocks are typically uh, i think probably you know in you know, definitely having some inflation protection in, in your portfolio. And, and there's a sort of weird, strange um, you know, paradox that actually cash becomes more valuable uh, in an inflation from an investment, from an investor's perspective, because it helps you sort of um, buy the, you know, it, it lowers the volatility of your portfolio. So actually cash, strange enough, is is more valuable at such times, and and you and you you see you see that happening now that the value stocks have been doing uh, relatively well, and, and investors are upping their holdings of cash. I think with regards to bonds, you know, from the work I've done on bonds in the past, is um, they're they're not really safe until policy rates, um, and well, until the bond yields themselves. Uh, rise above the inflation level. So I'm not saying that you know you you can't get sort of trading gains on bonds, uh, but but I, I think we're probably in for a sort of you know for a long period of of, of rising interest rates. So as, as you remember, one of the points I make out make in the book is that these bond market cycles tend to last for 40 years. So I mean for you know most of my adult life. Um, you know, bond bond yields have have, have been falling, uh, but the corollary of that is that you 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 often have periods of 25, 30, 40 years of rising rates. So that and that and and if you throw in that with inflation, that becomes, as I said, difficult, um, you know, very difficult for for the st stock market investors because bond, because stocks get get marked down at such times. Yeah, we've, we've not got much time left, I'm afraid, but uh, I just want to zero in on something that's become very uh, politically controversial in the last few weeks since Liz Truss became Prime Minister and during the campaign, which is this question of the independence of the bank. Now, judging from what you've written in the book, I would suggest you would probably favour quite a radical change in that setup, maybe for the, the government to... Um, get much more involved in, in the setting of interest rates. I mean, what is your position on that? Do you think she is right to say that ministers should be involved in that, that they should carry the can as well as... Well, I, I, was, in, I was interested um, that she showed, you know, when, when, when Liz Truss started making these comments. I mean, my first point is I, I don't think that, you know, that, that uh, independence of central banking is an end in itself. And the best example you can give of that is that the Reichsbank in the 1920s was constitutionally independent, and yet, uh, from a position of independence, it still managed to engineer one of the greatest hyperinflations of all time. And actually, when when the government actually instituted its currency reform, 
German government in, in November 1922, the Reichsbank actually objected to it, saying that this was a grotesque interference with its independence. So these claims that, you know, and particularly now with you know inflation, leaving aside all the problems I've mentioned of the ultra low interest rate environment, which you know, I think you know pretty serious, uh, but they haven't even managed to achieve their inflation uh, targets. So the idea of the central banks getting very huffy about independence at this moment is is um, I think you know uh, rather you know risible. Um, but there are the, the other point, perhaps the more important point, is that the, the central banks are given a mandate, and this mandate has been uh, price stability. And as I argue, uh, or, or which is now interpreted generally as this 2% inflation target, and as I argue in the book, uh, this target, uh, or the, you know, the pursuit of price stability, which the Fed actually tried in the 1920s and ended in complete disaster uh, that has been um, practiced over the last 30 years, given us a succession of, of great bubbles, the dot-com bubble, the credit boom, and now the, you know, your everything bubble, uh, that the, the, this, this tar the, the inflation target needs to be, or, or the, the central bank's mandates needs to be reassessed. And I'm, I'm saying you know, that we don't know uh, necessarily what the so-called natural rate is, the sort of chimera of the perfect rate uh, for an economy. But I'm saying you cannot just uh, discover the best, the optimal interest rate by only looking at inflation. You have to consider a broader set of, 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 of factors. One of the problems over the last 20 years, it, or, or 30 years of central bank independence and mandates, is that the politicians have washed their hands of responsibility uh, for the consequences of monetary policy, um, namely, as I say, the impact it has on, on, on the state of the economy, on, on the distribution of income and wealth and so forth. Um, and they've just, and the, and the central bankers themselves have always argued, well, these are issues that the politicians uh, should concern should deal with it they're not our responsibility so in a way a lot of the in the, the the question of central banks independence with these fixed uh, price stability uh, mandates means that a lot of issues have have, have fallen between the the stools um and have not not been addressed uh, it's not i i don't think that a uh, that necessarily that a um that that when a government, when elected politicians uh, take ultimate responsibility for monetary policy, that that will uh, that must lead to a worst long time, long term inflation record, uh, and it and it has one advantage, namely, uh, if if um, if great monetary policy errors are made, it it, it, it the political politicians and the political party. That uh, that makes those mistakes has to carry the can. Yeah, and just 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 to finish off, there's something right at the very end of the book that really struck me. I think it's even the last paragraph of the of the postscript, um, in which you discuss a sort of central bank digital currency, and I wonder how you square or how one might square that idea 
which you said, which you say would be a, would be a good way of kind of taking this out of the hands of central bankers. But how do we square that with this other problem that you discuss in the book of the so-called digital panopticon, where the government kind of knows about everything you do? Or would it be would it be if we did have, say, a Britcoin, which is something that's been discussed, would it work best as kind of one of many currencies or would it be the currency that we use? Well, as you probably know, Hayek um, made an argument that the, be that the best um, outcome um, for w would be for um, private banks to issue their own competing currencies and a sort of reverse Gresham's law would take place in which the, the, the strongest currencies would survive and the weakest would, uh, would disappear. Um, I, I think I'm ending the book um, really on the problem, the central problem of interest in the current day is that we can't really expect um, central planners, uh, uh, you know, mon monetary policymakers to have them big their research stuff to actually discover <laughs> uh, the um, the you know the the inputs into a, a market-based interest rate. So it would be um, in an ideal world nice to get to a world in which central bankers weren't setting rates, in which there was you know the core of the monetary system uh, what was was if not fixed at least sort of increasing in line with with the long-term growth rate of an economy, and in which then interest. Uh, would reflect the actual savings, um, at the demand for, for savings where it had actually been made. Now, there are two ways you can do this um, in the modern world uh, without going back to a gold standard. Uh, one would be, you know, a world in which a cryptocurrency emerged uh, that was uh, not corrupt and not a Ponzi scheme. Uh, but the trouble is that, you know, we still seem to be uh, quite far from from that uh, place. And the alternative would be if a central bank issued uh, a, 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 you know, a central bank digital currency uh, that, that was mandated to grow at only a certain fixed percentage point a year. Uh, this is an idea um, mooted by my friend Thomas Meyer, who was a former uh, chief economist at Deutsche Bank. And he, he's written this up. And one of the advantages of this is, is that they would actually, uh, the central banks could, could actually, um, the, 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 the digital central bank currency could actually be backed by, by government debt. <laughs> so it would actually have the capacity to absorb quite a lot of the debt. Um, and it would take, as I say, the central bankers out of the thorny business of setting interest rates. The downside, as you point out, is you know we're living in a world in which um, you know in which um, you know, information about you know people's uh, activities is is more and more gathered by the state and a a central bank digital currency or a, a world in which all all bank accounts were held with the central bank would give um, you know a a a, 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 a totalitarian um, you know, com complete um, vision uh, over what people were doing in the entire course of their lives. I mean, whether you could build, you know, 
encryptions into these transactions you know um i you know it, it's it's difficult it, it could be done on paper whether you know it, whether it would actually be done in a satisfactory way uh, we'll see i i think that one what might happen is that you'll find that you know not necessarily the bank of england but say the swiss national bank or 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 or, or singaporean monetary authorities which have a better reputation for um, for for maintaining price stability um, and, and, and better inflation credentials, um, and perhaps even in the Swiss case, you know, a bet, a better history of, of banking privacy. That they, you know, that a central bank could issue it and then compete, uh, well, you know, globally with with such currency. But we'll see. Okay, well, plenty of food for thought there, uh, particularly for any budding despots uh, among our listeners, who fancy uh, knowing what you're all up to. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Um, to all our listeners who haven't yet read The Price of Time, I mean, it really is a sort of densely fascinating, both a history and a kind of call to arms as well. It, it's uh, like, like those financial instruments you describe, it serves more than one purpose. Um, so I really would encourage you uh, to give it a read. And thank you all at home as ever for listening. Do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Mm-hmm.